Being a school principal might just be the most interrupted job on the planet. Every celebration, classroom party, and great lesson in the school, you're invited. Every difficult conversation with a parent whose child is not behaving or with a teacher who's chronically late to work, you're there too. And every emergency in the building with 500, 1,000, 2,000 people in it, it's your emergency. And on top of all that, you are responsible every day for the safety of the world's most precious asset, our children. How do they do it? We're here to find out, here in the principal's office. Hello and welcome back to the Principal's Office Podcast. This is Jeff Gorski from Leaders Building Leaders, where our mission is to be the difference maker in the leadership development of individuals and organizations. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, please visit our website. It's lbleaders.com. Well, this week for the Principal's Office Podcast, I have visited Dr. Joanne Woodard of the Sally B. Howard School in Wilson, North Carolina. And this this podcast is a little bit different because whereas sometimes we've gone to schools and learned very specifically, tactically, what schools are doing to do the amazing things that they're doing, uh, in this case, I talked to Dr. Woodard about the origin story of the school and learned the answer to the question I had, who is Sally B. Howard? Well, what I learned surprised me and inspired me, and I think it will do the same for you. So please enjoy this episode of the Principal's Office Podcast with Dr. Joanne Woodard. Good morning. Dr. Joanne Woodard is with me on the Principal's Office Podcast. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you. Uh, We are today at one of the shining stars of charter schools in North Carolina. Uh, This is Sally B. Howard School in Wilson, North Carolina. And... uh, in, in being able to do some research around charter schools, I've long wanted to be able to come here and, and see what you are doing because you are a school that has exceeded growth now for a number of years straight, that your overall proficiency and overall school report card grade has been on the up, up, up for years. Right. And so you must be doing amazing things here. And I, I'm just so excited to learn from you today. Thank you. Um, but before we talk about that, do I understand that you come from a family or you have family or that surrounds you that are educators as well? Some. Some family yeah. educators? My, uh, I'm from Wilson, actually. And my parents uh, were just laborers. You know, not in my household, they were not educators. They were, my mom was a domestic. Uh, I'm 70 years old, so, you know, this was uh, in the 1950s and 60s. I graduated from high school in 65. And let me just go on and give you that. I went to the Bennett College in Greensboro, North Carolina with uh, earning a psychology degree, and then I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor to earn my master's and my PhD in psychology. So surely we were encouraged in all of that, but the actual people in the house were not uh, educated people in terms of professionals. They were, my mom was a domestic and a cook. My grandfather was a brick mason. My mom worked in the factory, my grandmother worked in the factory. And then we had siblings, cousins, you know, multiple generations in the house. That was pretty typical Mm -hmm. in Eastern North Carolina back in that day. But I did have family members who were college educated, counselors in school, teachers, uh, you know, that kind of thing, that they did not live in my house. They were in other places in Philadelphia or Salisbury, North Carolina, places like that. Great role models though, Mm -hmm. but not a, a whole family of educators right there in the house. I'll tell you this story how it was that all of my siblings went to college and are doing well and have done well. 
my mother had a young uh, brother. He was the youngest of 14. She was mm -hmm. the oldest female of the 14 and the second oldest in the line. And by that time, those younger ones may be in a, were, were, were going to college. So my uncle Clarence, who lived in Durham, he was going. He went to college, and she, for the first time in her life, attended a, a college graduation at North Carolina College. It's now North Carolina Central University mm -hmm. now, but back in the day, it was North Carolina College. She was so taken, so moved. She loved that youngest uh, brother because she pretty much raised him. You know, you're 14, and he's the youngest. You're mama to that baby right. there. And uh, so when she went to his graduation, Jeff, she had never seen anything like it. Graduations were very auspicious. They were very solemn. They were very sacred then. Now we're raising cane, throwing hats and all that. It's yeah. a party. And so that event was transformational for her. She said, I want my children to graduate from college. She wanted that experience for her children. She experienced it for her brother, youngest brother. And although she was a cook and a domestic, she put it in our heads that college was where we wanted to go, or where she wanted us to go. And not only that, she sacrificed to put us in the Catholic school. Three of us, little steps, uh, you know, one year apart. She didn't have the money, you know, to, to, to afford any kind of private school. But at that time, St. Alphonsus, a school for blacks, uh, would give you a break. So you might pay $2 a month or a week for the first child, a dollar for the second child, 50 cents for the third. So she worked to make sure we were going to be able to go to that school because at the time, that was your best foundation. So we all graduated from St. Alphonsus and then went to the lo local high school. And we were good students, just bottom line, honor roll students, so we got scholarships. We got into colleges and we got scholarships. She never sent any money, because she never had any money to send us. So we had you know, work, you know, work study things at college and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm only pointing to that, just my personal thing, because uh, and she didn't beat it in our heads. We just, you grew up with an expectation you're going to college. Mm -hmm. So the question was, what college are you going to? It wasn't, oh, I'm finishing high school. Will I go to college are now? Are you going to college? No, yeah. it was you're going to college in your own head. Nobody was making you go. It was just what the expectation was from the time you were small. So I, I honor and I appreciate that. You know, I think that was pretty magical. I think that was pretty something on her part, an intention that, you know, that she made happen because it meant that much to her. So maybe that came back around after you got your psychology degree and did you practice psychology before you got back into education then? Before I got into education, yes. First of all, after uh, the University of Michigan, I started working at Children's Television Workshop in uh, New York City in their research department. That's a long story. Uh, they were experimenting with uh, with a, a new repertory company, a new repertory format, and I was on the research end of it, and it didn't work. So they did a couple of uh, you know, hits on that, and then they let it go. I can't even remember now the name of it. But um, it wasn't the electric company, and it wasn't Sesame Street. It was a third thing that they were trying to experiment with then. Then I worked for the uh, city of uh, Newark in their uh, CETA, 
program, children's uh, children's uh, program for the block grant type of things at that time. Oh, this is a long time ago. But it, yes, when I came to North Carolina, I worked in um, uh, group homes as a staff psychologist. I worked in uh, Cherry, uh, and I'm not not Cherry, but Oberry Center as a staff psychologist. So yeah, I did work as a psychologist with my degree. And then I came in contact with Sally B. Howard, the person. When I moved back to North Carolina with my three children, I went to the church that my family attended. It was St. John AME Zion Church, and she was the head of the Christian Education Department. And so I said, okay, well, I have three children. I'll work in that department with her. So it's almost like destiny. When Dr. Woodard and Sally B. Howard met, other speakers have said, the rest is history. Mm -hmm. So we have a Sally B. Howard School, and I founded that Sally B. Howard School and have been the uh, the executive director of this school since its founding. Since the beginning. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about this Sally B. Howard? Oh, wow. She introduced me. I, I say that I was her protege. She took me under her wing and introduced me to a whole body of knowledge that I had no idea about. I'm an African-American woman uh, growing up in the South. And back in the 60s, the 50s and 60s, Jim Crow era, you know, so the the system of white supremacy reigned large. And the system of education was completely compromised when it came to learning something about yourself. You knew all about Europeans. You knew all about American history as told from their from that from their perspective. What Mrs. Howard did was to introduce me to my African heritage. Something, I, what is she talking about? I wasn't even listening at first. You know, she can't be telling the <laughs> truth. That stuff can't be real. It's not in any books that I've read. And listen, when I met her, I had a PhD, just by the way. But I was completely ignorant hmm. of the, the, the knowledge she, she, she uh, presented to me. In, in, a, in, a, in a gradual way. It wasn't like, hey, come sit down. I need to tell you a lot of things. I, I, was, I grew up in Eastern North Carolina, so I'm a very uh, gracious and, and polite and respectful person to my elders. So I would never say no to her. I was working with her in the, in the church, and I would just, if she said, come over this afternoon, I'd come over this afternoon. Read this. I'd read that, you know, but I wasn't impressed. And then I, I, but at one point, I, and what she was asking me to read was Nile Valley a Conference. Uh, they came before Columbus, uh, some tapes from the Nile Valley symposiums. And she was telling me and she was exposing me. But it took me a little while to wake up to what she was saying, what she was teaching me. And as I mentioned earlier, she, she, her, her, her mission was to say to me and to others that she taught that. You're great people. You're not the bottom of the totem pole as you may think, You're, uh, you know, in terms of how you see yourself because we're in this culture, because we're in this environment. But I need you to know that in Africa 4,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, along the Nile Valley emerged the first people and the first civilization on the planet. And, uh, that you built the 
great pyramid of Giza, which cannot be repeated or replicated now, that you have greatness running in your veins, that you erected the first stone building. And, And she taught us these things, taught me these things, not to make me feel better than anybody else, not to make me angry that I didn't know that, or angry at the system here that keeps that kind of knowledge from you on purpose. She, it wasn't that. It was, hey, listen, baby girl, think more highly of yourself. You have greatness running in your veins. You're a great people and you've done great things. Be proud of your heritage, your African heritage, that kind of thing. That was her goal, and that's exactly what she accomplished in me. Over time, as I began to embrace and understand, I started standing, and I'm, I already have a PhD, man. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know. I started thinking more highly of myself. It changed me on the inside. I fell in love with myself. I was more comfortable with me around anybody. So, so Miss Howard taught you. Yeah. Uh, taught you some messages of valuing yourself yes. and of joy. Yes. And were those some of the founding values that the school was started on? Absolutely. Uh, I, I thought to myself, wow, our children need to know that. When I came back home, you know, we were now, in, in, we were now integrated. And, but the sad part was the, the poor kids and the black kids were... Uh, pretty lost about where they belonged Mm -hmm. and um, you know when I grew up it was you were it was all a a segregated situation so you didn't have any issues or questions or qualms about who you were and where you belong but when you're in a a diverse environment and now most of your teachers are white a lot of the children are white you don't have a connection with that culture you really don't not in Eastern North Carolina, because mm-hmm. up until that point, you had no connection with them. You lived on this, this side of the tracks. Everything was done on this side of town. There was no meeting place for blacks and whites during Jim Crow period. So all of a sudden now, we're all mixed in together. So when I came home with my kids, I discovered that there were, that lots of the black kids were... They didn't. They didn't know where they belonged. The 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 uh, parents were not involved enough in their education. Uh, maybe not very trustworthy. I don't know, but I know that my children experienced something that I had never heard of. I'm going to how we got the school started. Mm-hmm. My kids, my three little ones, second, fourth, and fifth graders, had never experienced what they came to experience here because we were living in California before we came here, and it's all very, you know, lovely in California. You've touched all the corners, Mm -hmm. Michigan, New York, New Jersey, Mm -hmm. California, North Carolina. And they were in a year-round school, and they had cultures from all over the globe Mm -hmm. at Peralta. That was the name of the school. Uh, And so they came here, and they said, oh, my goodness, Mom, why is the teacher asking my friends how how does their mom make money? And my friend didn't know, and she said, she told the teacher, I don't know. And uh, the teacher said, 
the teacher asked her, what does your mom do for a living? And she said she didn't know. She said, well, how does she make her money? And she said, my little fourth grader said, Mama, that was embarrassing. The girl hung her head down. Why did she even ask her that? And then they were talking about other things uh, all the time, and they weren't happy here. I had trouble trying to get those kids into their uh, AG programs because we they came from gifted and talented education from California. I had all the documents, all the exams, all the paperwork because they were already in the program and I took them to the school and they said, I'm sorry ma'am, your child doesn't qualify. So I said, well, if they don't qualify, something's wrong here. I'm not trying to ask you to do something for them that they haven't already earned. I have the paperwork ma'am. Uh, and I, I didn't say it quite as nicely as that. But anyway, she said, well, we can, we can, we can, we can, we can, we can test them. I said, well, go ahead and do whatever you have to do. And so I, I was hitting walls, man. I, I, didn't, I didn't expect any of that. Uh, so I uh, saw parents not um, advocating for their children. I just saw that. And these were kids just as bright as mine. They weren't in the, any AG programs. They were in basics. They weren't getting the quality of education that they deserved and had a right to because the parents didn't know how to advocate for that. So and then that combination of knowing that my kids were unhappy and that other kids were not getting justice here in education along with the consciousness raising that Miss Howard brought to me, that combination inspired me to take some action. I could not just sit. I got my kids in AIG, but what about the what, what about the others? Um, so it, it was so uncomfortable for me, and I was so hurt. I wasn't angry, Jeff. I was heartbroken because this is the home that I grew up in. This is the town I grew up in. This is the place that I love. This is the place where I got my start. This is the place where my family is. This is the place where people have poured everything into me to make me who I am and who I had become at that point. I wouldn't have been able to do that without the encouragement of my teachers, the help of guidance counselors. I wouldn't have become any of that. I wouldn't have achieved any of that, except I got this in my hometown and from my schooling. So my, my heart was broken because of what was happening and how things had changed in that direction so you know I'm, I'm going to be quite honest with you I said I, I cried out to God I said Lord how long how long is it going to be 450 more years before justice can be served to your people we are your people too when is justice coming to us it broke my heart Jeff and you know what God said to me? <laughs> what did he say? He said, that's why I made you. And I shut my mouth and I got to work. And what I started was the Youth Enrichment Program. Uh, it was a summer camp. There was no charter law at that time. Mm -hmm. We started this in 1989. And I wanted to gather all of the little black boys and girls going to these integrated schools and let them know they are somebody and you belong to us. You belong somewhere right here. And Sally B. Howard was the center of that youth enrichment program because she began to teach them what she had already taught me. You are somebody, sister. Mm -hmm. 
Little brother, you are somebody great. You are somebody special. You have genius and brilliance and everything running in your veins. She taught them about their heritage in that summer program. And I'm telling you, they were there before we got to the building. You can never beat them there. We didn't charge a thing. Mom went to the churches and said, moms, dads, we're going to bring the kids together in the summer for a summer six-week summer program, keep them off the street, keep them from vandalizing the school buildings, running the streets, bring them over here. We're going to feed them. We're going to, it doesn't cost you anything. Those children were there before we got there every single day because of the magic of Sally mm -hmm. B. Howard, that person. Oh, she could, t she taught them Kwaheri, that, that's, she taught them Kiswahili, Asante, she taught them songs. Ah, they are still in this town, and boy, they will tell you all about Sally B. Howard and the Youth Enrichment Program. We took them to Washington, D.C., we took them to Emerald Point, we took them to zoos and, and, and museums, we took them to fun places that, that most kids get to do. Mm -hmm. But if you're poor and you don't have anything, you're just going to be throwing rocks at the, at the buildings, breaking windows, because you don't have a thing to do to occupy your time. And that's the pattern of what was going on. But, so then we did that for eight years, uh, 300 children every summer. The first summer, there were 400. And it's a story about we had nothing when we started, just nothing. I just had that, ha had that in my heart. I was working uh, at the uh, Oberry Center. And I wanted to start this little summer program with Ms. Howard, and I just did it. I mean, I didn't have anything. I, I'm a single parent with three children. I don't have anything, but it's in my heart to do it. And I went to my church, uh, and I said, okay, I think we can have about 75 children um, in a summer program that Mrs. Howard and I will be conducting. Um, mainly, it'll be about teaching them about their African heritage. And so they said, well, uh, we can't even get the uh, vacation Bible school, 75 children in our vacation Bible school. How are you going to get 75 children? But if you can, you can use this building. That's the church told me that. So, so on the day that it opened, we had 450, 420 students to show up, mm. parents to bring them. We were at um, the parking lot of... I want to say Jackson Chapel, but nevertheless, I don't shouldn't be naming names. And those p cars started pulling up, and I said, "Ma'am, ma'am, do you have a few minutes? Can you just help us set up some tables, ma'am? Can you do you have to go to work? Can you give us a little time, uh, helping up?" I didn't have a staff, man. <laughs> I didn't have anything. <laughs> <Just to do. laughs> yeah, and uh, so it was it was so chaotic. It was so crazy, and. Um, we just couldn't hold them in one place. There were 420 kids, and it was just overwhelming. So G.K. Butterfield and, and Toby Fitch, you probably know those names. They're politicians. G.K. is a congressman now. Toby Fitch is a superior court judge. And we were classmates, so I knew these guys, and I told them about it. And, of course, they said, sure, we'll help you. But when they saw that morning, uh, G.K. and Toby came over and said, listen, walk them to the uh, Reed Street Center. So we walked the 450 children, two by twos, down Green Street, up Reed Street, 
and the people were pulling the curtains open the window. What is going on? You know what a parade that would be? 452 by two? Mm-hmm. That's a long walk. Let's That's a coming. long line. Yeah. So folks coming out there, what is going on? And we got them over there and we we finished the first day. I, I The stories behind that, there's something else. But we, we made it. Toby went to, um, Toby Fitch went to uh, Raleigh and got us a child nutrition summer feeding grant. You know, they do mm-hmm. that. So that's how GK went to Hardy's Corporation in Rocky Mountain, got us to send lunches, got them to send lunches mm-hmm. to us every day. So we were eating good. We had plenty of food by then. And Mrs. Howe was holding those kids down in that auditorium, talking about t- teaching them key Swahili and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, it was a good feeling. Now, it was too many. I thought I could just get it started and go to work. I called the O'Bear. I said, listen, I need a sabbatical, a little six-week sabbatical. I know it's short notice, but, you know, I won't be getting paid. So can I get a six-week sabbatical? And they said, no, ma'am, I'm sorry, you can't get it. Mm-hmm. I said, well, okay, well, I won't be coming back because I got to do this. You know, I realized fully that... This was a moment that I could really make a difference in in the world, in the life of these kids. And that moment might not come again. And I don't know what's going to happen to me afterwards, but I know right now in this moment, I have to do this. And I did that. My, My mom thought that I had lost my mind and nobody was, and my family was happy that I was doing that because how are you going to feed your children? You know, but let me just speak philosophically here. When you take on something bigger than yourself, the universe helps you. When you just stay completely immersed in that little dot on the, in, on the planet, that little speck of sand that's who you are, you may not get opportunities to really make a difference. So I, I just knew that. I mean, I just didn't know it inherently. When I was going to college, I came in contact with philosophies that spoke to that too, and it just came back to my remembrance. I might not get this chance again, and I know how important it is. I know how that knowledge changed me. I know how Salaby how it changed me. And here's a chance for she and I, and for me, and really, to put her in front of these hundreds of children so that she can change them. Am I gonna walk away from that? I can't do it, even with the, even not having a job. So I didn't have a job, but let me tell you this. On the final day of that program, it was a Friday, they had a big article in the paper. Toby Fitch had helped me get that. He, he did that. He, he didn't say, he just did what he wanted to do. He got the Wilson Daily Times over here, and they did a huge spread on that summer program. That was a Friday. Saturday morning, Barton College Psychology Department called me. Now, that was the last day of school now. That, and I, what am I going to do? I need to go to work somewhere. That uh, Doris Capps from Barton College in the psychology department called me and said, oh, we see that you are a psychologist because they mentioned that in there. Would you be interested? We have a position open. Hmm. Would you be interested in applying for it? I said, sure. I went there and I got that job. And I stayed there eight years. Four of those eight years, I was a chair of the department. So that's God. I'm sorry. That's, I don't know people don't believe in that, a lot of that. But that's the universe. That's God, any way you put it. Already has a plan set up for your life. It, if you receive and are willing to follow your heart, man. And then 
North Carolina passed a charter law. Mm-hmm. Vernon Robinson, one of the lobbyists for that charter, came to me and said, I know what you've been doing. You need to apply for a charter school now. So but, I'm, I'm curious then, so you're following the story now. You were working in the psychology field all across the country. You came here. You were called to start working with kids. Uh, directly with kids in this in this summertime program, and then for the next eight years you bounce back and forth between teaching in the off season and then this yeah. program in the summer. Exactly. So what? So over that over those eight years and leading up to opening the school, what did you learn about working with kids that has stuck with you over these past? 20? I learned everything that I know from Sally B. Howard because now we were partners. We mm-hmm. worked with those three hundred kids every single summer, and she told me exactly how I needed to handle. Now Sally B. Howard was a retired school teacher from. New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, She taught first grade uh, for 25, 30 years there. Uh, So she said, she gave me the, the, she told me what to do. She said, listen, when there's a conflict between students, always listen to both sides. Even if you saw it with your own eyes, Joanne, (laughs) hear from each one of them, because there might have been something that happened prior to what what you saw. Somebody might have started that thing on, the, on another way, and then this kid reacted. So always, always, always listen to both sides. And when you listen for real to both sides, you're going to come to a just and a fair conclusion and action, and both sides will accept it. Because nobody was dismissed. You heard, you questioned, you investigated, you listened, and you took all of that into account without any bias, and you were fair. So both of them, and I'm telling you, things like that. She told me how to deal with children, how to deal with parents. She said, don't start something today and, fin- and, and quit tomorrow. If you start a summer program this summer, you must do it every single year, come what may, hard or easy, because then nobody can count on you if you're here today, gone tomorrow, back the next day, and then you're wishy-washy like that. Mm -hmm. You want the community to be able to count on the fact that, oh, I'm going to put my child in the summer program next year because it's going to be there. Let people know you, they can count on you for what you say and what you do, those kinds of things. Um, And uh, I'm going to bring fast forward to when we started the school concerning what she taught me. we were looking for teachers. I said, I said, Ms. Howard, we're gonna have, we gotta get some teachers now. So what are the qualifications that we should be looking for for a teacher for Sally B. Howard School? They gotta love the children. They gotta love the children. If they love the children, Joanne, everything else you can show them, you can teach them. But if they don't love the ch- children, they don't need to be there. I said, now how in the world am I going <laughs> to uh, interview people and screen out the ones who love them and the ones who don't? Because everybody's looking for a job. They'll tell you anything. That's right. You know, so, but anyway, that's the kind of advice. So I, I go to her, I, 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 especially in the beginning, it, around conflicts. And we had not, with those 400 or 300 children every year, we did not have a moment's problem with any parent. Hmm. They trusted us. And, that, and because they trusted us and they saw the good things that were coming from their children, those children took those key Swahili songs and took them to church because they were church songs. One of them is Asante Mungu. That means thank you, Lord. Everybody knows that song. Thank you, Lord. 
I just want to thank you. Well, she taught it to them in uh, Key Sweat, and they were going to the churches and singing it on you thing. <laughs> you know? So the parents really saw real value and had deep trust for what we were doing, and we did it year after year after year after year, which is what Mrs. Howard said we must do. Eight years running. We didn't know there was a charter law going to be passed in a few years after we got started, but we always thought about, boy, if we could have a school, we do what we do in the summer and change children's lives. Just imagine if we had a school all year. Mm-hmm. We were thinking that. We didn't even bought land in 1992. Sure did. Mm-hmm. Bought some land over there on Lipscomb Road next to uh, Hattie Daniels. A vacant lot. I guess dreaming one day, maybe we could have a school of our own. I don't know how, because we just working stiffs, man. We trying to, we working paycheck to paycheck, trying to keep food on the table. Uh, we don't have any deep pockets now. How are we gonna, but well, we bought that land. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, bo- the, 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 the board did. And lo and behold, eight years later, well not eight years, because 92 we bought the land, and 97 we started. Five years later, is that five? I'm telling you, math is not my strong suit. Okay, <laughs> five years later, uh, Vernon Robinson comes to town and says, you should be applying for a charter school. So uh, that's what we did. So you've got, so, so kind of thinking my way back to the story. So you've got, uh, you know, you've been traveling around the country. You've lived as a psychologist. You come here. You're called to open this summer program. You, someone comes to you and says what you're doing would work better throughout the year rather than just during the summer. You can have that. And in that first class of charter schools that, that opened in 1997, you opened where? In this building? Oh, no. We had place? 15 trailers. I, I said before you started airing that uh, it was a struggle. Yeah. You know, at the time, the you had to get a... You had to get approved even before it went. There were a couple of ways of doing it. I don't know if you want to even divert into all that, but there were a couple of ways of getting your charter application approved. You could go to the local school board in your district, in your county, and present your charter. This is who you're competing against, but that was one avenue. You go to them, and they'll approve. They can approve or, or make a comment about they di- they disapprove of it and why and that kind of thing. I didn't know you could go some other place and do it, but we, we went along. You know, we didn't know much, and so we presented it to the school board, <clears throat> and lo and behold, they actually thought that it was okay. Uh, we went back and forth on questions and all that kind of stuff, but they, they didn't see any reason not to pass it, not to approve it. Because they didn't have a notion that this thing would ever come to fruition. Mm. So, uh, you know, and we had a good application. I'm, I'm a psychologist, I know about Howard Gardner's concepts of multiple intelligences, and that was the theme of the, the school. Uh, I had a couple of partners helping me with that. Uh, but we thought that from the experience of uh, the summer program and from the knowledge I had about Gardner, Howard how Gardner's uh, multiple intelligence, because I taught that in the college, I bought into that notion that educational reform is needed because we only value two kinds of intelligences. That's verbal and math. That gets you into college. That gets you into your AG programs. Verbal and math skills. If you got that down, you 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 you're gonna go far. You got a good foundation, good home. You got the basics. You're going wherever you wanna go. Well, the children we're gonna serve, they don't have that. 
very a lot of gaps so we thought and so what he said was what education reform should do now is expand its essential curriculum its core curriculum from just verbal and math valuing verbal and math to other kinds of intelligences and his work had already identified about eight different intelligences musical intelligence spatial intelligence interpersonal intelligence the charismatic people um uh, kinesthetic intelligence, the Barishnikovs, the Michael Jordans, mm -hmm. they've got this extra talent and ability to respond to muscle memory and to develop muscle memory. That kind of, so those intelligence, and I thought, well, you know, that would apply to these rascals we're about to serve because they're not all going to have a strong verbal and math intelligence. They're going to have artistic intelligence. They're going to have muscle. They're going to have kinesthetic. They're going to have all other kinds of it. Musical, uh, you know, the, 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 the being able to see spatial intelligence, being able to see depth and dimension, can build, can do all those things. That's all children. But I know we better bring something in there or else these children are not going to stay. And what, uh, what uh, Howard Gardner said was, Unless you have something in your curriculum that honors and values the talent and the abilities that the children bring, you're not going to keep them, and, you, and they're not going to be happy. They'll, and not only that, but they will cooperate with the, in the air, other areas that they're not so strong in. Because, hey, nobody can build a ship like you, baby. Nobody can draw a picture like you, and it's the core curriculum. It's not the extra curriculum after school and all that. So we said we will have a school for the arts and education because we've got to pull in on the same plane as reading, writing, math, science, dance, drama, visual arts, singing, uh, model making. We've got to put it on the same plane and give it the same value because that, that was his theory. He said educational reform needs to expand um, its core curriculum to include other intelligences besides reading and math. So that's what we did, and it worked like a charm right away. I'm telling you. Those kids were running out of the house like they did when they came to the summer camp. That's the first thing parents would say to us uh, when they brought them to Sally B. Howe, that the first change they saw was that, boy, I used... I couldn't get my kids up. They were, uh, they. I got a stomach ache. I don't want to go to school. Uh, but once since they've been here, they're up before I am. Said, Mama, let's go, <laughs> because they have in their day, in their curriculum, a place to shine and be the best and be the greatest. Even over over the rest of you, you might get all the good grades in math and and reading, but I, you can't beat me. You can't top me. You can't touch me when it comes to, you know drawing and singing or you know all of those things so that that that's the curriculum we had uh, put together along with study abroad because mrs howell is a world traveler mm -hmm. she's been to more than 40 countries and the stories i can tell you about those countries will just be wonderful <laughs> i gotta tell you about iraq got to she went to iraq without a visa she was not because she didn't know. What year was this? Oh, I guess it was in the seventies. That's most of her okay. chat. Wow. She went to Iraq without. She went all over the country, all over the world, forty different countries. Every summer when school was out, she'd fly away, or get a boat and cruise away. 
And she said, she tells me this story. She says, um, they said to her, Madame, when we go to America, we take a visa, ma'am. Why are you here? No visa? And she politely, uh, and she's a gracious woman, she politely said, well, my mission is to see the seven wonders of the world. And I need to see the hanging gardens of Babylon here in Iraq. They questioned her for hours. They were trying to see if she's a spy. Mm -hmm. How, you would be the dumbest spy in the world to come without a visa and get stopped for several hours at custom. But anyway, after a while, they decided that she was not a spy, and they let her in. How about that? How about that? Yeah. So uh, anyway, so her, 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 her travel stories gave us the notion we need to add study abroad in our curriculum. I guess I'm getting back to the point that, and, and we have a wonderful, amazing study abroad. We've been to China, India, Egypt, Tanzania, Kenya, uh, 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 Australia, hardly, uh, Alaska, we went with a group from India to travel. Uh, we've got a little sister school with a pine grove in India, and we one, one year they wanted to go to Alaska, and we said, well, it's not outside the U.S., but we'll travel there this year with you. Cuba, we, the last place we went to was Cuba, just before they shut it down, you know, just before they closed it off. And then when, when Obama opened it up that year, I said, we better go to Cuba now. Gotta go back. Mm -hmm. No, we gotta go, because it might not stay open. And so we went there too. <clears throat> so anyway, every two years we travel. We pay for the students to go. It's uh, their middle school students and they have to compete for the chance to go with a research paper, interview, all of that. You know, so uh, they only have to get their passport and their souvenir money they're going to take to bring back things for their family. That's been very, very rich and transformational to these mm. Eastern North Carolina little rascals because you know they haven't been anywhere, been on anything, a train, a boat, a plane, or nothing. I know I'm talking. I know I'm talking. Yeah, and the people are going to be, oh, who is this? This is a principal? No you got to be kidding me. But anyway, uh, so... We uh, created a very thorough and well thought out pro program, mm -hmm. presented it to the school board, the local school board here, and they really did not find an objection to it. But I, I do know it's because they thought these little rascals over here, these little Negroes over here, they're not going to get a charter school. Mm -hmm. They don't have the resources to make a charter school. So they had no compunction to just, cause, first of all, they couldn't find any material problem with it. I didn't do it by myself. I had two colleagues working on this and we did the research and we put it together so they accepted it. And that's how it went to the state for their approval. And then we had to go there and present and talk and all that. You know what kind of talker I am, right? And you know the passion that I have. So I kind of probably overwhelmed them. And they said, oh, well, let her go. So, <laughs> so anyway, we, we got started very, 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 uh, you know, in a very rough way because we did not have the financing. And there was an EMO, an educational management organization that had been courting us all year. I mean, all the time that we were getting this. And but we said, no, we know what we want to do. We don't need a, a, a management, a franchise, to come and take over to tell us who to hire and what to do and all that kind of stuff and make money. That's what they were there for, to make money. Mm -hmm. So we resisted them the whole time until one of the banks that we've been dealing with all of our little nonprofit years slow walked us down the road to no. 
for that for that money. I don't know how much it was. It wasn't a whole lot to get those trailers. That's we owned land, so we wanted to pull up trailers onto the land, mm -hmm. and that would be our school. We wouldn't have a brick and mortar, you know, facility, and we in years we'd be able to get out. That was our plan. But the the, the local bank did not accept us, and I, I can talk about why I think they didn't uh, take a chance on us being the first year that charters were in the world in North Carolina. How long is this going to go? What kind of backing do these people have right. uh, if, if it doesn't go? So we didn't get the money. And then at that point, we still committed to opening that school. So we went to the EMO, and the EMO financed us for those trailers. We didn't last a year with them. Mm. We had to go to arbitration and everything else to get out of that deal with those folks because it was a pure mess practically the whole year. Surprised we even survived it. But... If it's the plan, if it's the master's plan, he's going to carry you through. So we survived it, and we went on from there. Now, 20 years later. 20 years later, you have 800 and some students. We have 1,000. You have 1,000 students We have 1,000 students. Oh, mm -hmm. my. And it's K-8. And it's K-8, and we're about to uh, break ground in April to, or May to build a high school. How about that? And it'll be a high school. It'll be the high, a high school for biotechnology and the performing arts. We have an amazing arts program now, a visual arts program. Our students in second grade take on a major in the performing of visual arts in second grade. Dance majors, chorus majors, band majors, visual arts majors, drama theater majors. They take a major in second grade. And you know we're serving, we're Title I school, serving... African-American and Hispanic, primarily, the large proportion of students are from that demographic. And we're Title I, low income. That means these aren't children and families that would be able to put these children in private dance and private studios and private lessons and private anything. Mm -hmm. So we are, we are giving those students and the ones we have and anybody else really opportunity to and and look we don't all of our art specialists are professionals degreed uh performance based this is not your local mom you know local singer soloist out here or your local person who works well with kids these are professionals with the whole gamut so you just need to see some of our work, man. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, we have it on uh, YouTube. We have it, you know, connected to our Facebook. We're, we're just, it's a dynamic and amazing thing. But you know, I don't really, I, I'm in the role of it. But you know, one person can't build this type of thing. It has to be, it has to be, I, I hate, and I don't hate to keep saying this, but this is who I am. It's got to be in the will of God. It's got to be a universal force, that, a creative force. I mean, that's what I know. I know I'm, it makes me uncomfortable sometimes to even talk about it, especially on a public format like that, but that's the truth. I have to speak it because I know it. I'm not just saying that. So uh, I, was just telling my, uh, I was just telling my staff the other day that, uh, some of my staff, that, you know, the, the good, the love that we have for what we do I don't even really feel like how much credit can you take for it because it's not from me. It's it's, it's brought to me through you. It's yeah. through me, you might say. But I'm I'm listen. I'm not mad. I'm not I'm not mad, and I'm not tired of doing this thing. I will always 
I get more energized year by year yeah. rather than less. Well, I, I think a theme. Stop in, me, please, yeah, and just no. ask a question. I was going to say, I, I think that a theme in what you're saying is that, uh, and I, I think I read this first from John Maxwell, which was that when you feel like you don't have what you need, the best way to get it is to give. That's right. right? Exactly. That by giving more, yeah. you know, more comes back to you. That's exactly right. Giving is receiving is what I have learned. It's not, we used to say giving is better than receiving. The fact is giving is receiving. Mm-hmm. That's how it goes. You get more. I'm, I'm giving you an interview, but I'm getting more from this, or as much from this interview as, as it may be a helpful thing for the work that you do. I also read not long ago this statement that says, what you do not have, think. What you do not have, you, you are not giving. If you're lacking love, you need to give more love. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you are lacking finances, you need to be a better giver. And not necessarily in finances, because it's the giving that brings fruit back to you, not necessarily in the way you gave it. Mm-hmm. You may not have money to give, but you got a lot of other things that you can give. And be generous and wholehearted in the giving, then the thing that you lack will be given to you, you might say. So same as giving is receiving. So that that was an interesting one. What you lack, you do not give. give. At least you're not giving enough of it. Okay. I believe that. Okay. So all of what you just said, I feel like ties, is tied in together, not by accident, with the quote that you have over the door I want to say that. Go ahead. Would you share that with us, please, and what that means to you in the Mm -hmm. school? Absolutely. When we build this porte-cachet, that's what the the construction, the the contractor calls it. He's on our board, too. When we built this porte-cachet, okay, (laughs) uh, there was that space above the entrance, and uh, I wanted to put uh, a quote up there, something to reflect or symbolize what we are about here. So even before you go in the door, oh, and you know, uh, so I found something. I found two things. There are two separate statements. One is, how should we treat others? And the response in that quote is, there are no others. We are here to awaken from the illusion of our separateness. I found that so compelling. And it's from two different people. One, an Indian Buddhist named Maharshi, named Ramana Maharshi. He said, how should we treat others? There are no others. And the, and the second part of it that says, uh, we are here to awaken from the illusion of our separateness was by Thich Nhat Hanh. And he is a Vietnamese monk. So, you know, that, those, those, that, the wisdom of the ages just floats, right, I guess. But those things went together. And I asked my board if I could put that up there. As the, uh, as the, because it symbolizes a couple of things. Well, the biggest part of it is in this day and time, there is totally an urgent need for people, common people, to return to their common humanity. You know, there's too much hate, there's too much polarization, there's too much racism, there's too much violence, there's too many wars. We're tearing people apart all the time, domestically, internationally. And look, 
this 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 can't go on. This this is this is so exemplary of our that philosophy of separateness. You're white, I'm black, you're male, I'm female, you're Buddhist, a Muslim, I'm Christian. All these ways to cut and divide people. That's our problem. That's the problem with the world. That's definitely the problem. But we are all members of the human family. That's our commonality. We are all human. And we're part of one humanity, one humanity. No matter, no matter where you live, what country you're from, we're part of one humanity, one creation in that respect. And so that's, that, that statement says, we are here to wake up from the false idea that we are divided and separate because we are only one, one we are one people. We are one people. Uh, we belong to one race, the human race. And so that's the long view, because I know right now, even you and I may not really be fully able to embrace that because we, we have our biases, we have our uh, judgments, we have our preferences, and I don't want my child too much over there with that child, and I'm afraid of that person, and let's live in this neighborhood. Well, that's smart, that's smart, that's smart. You're looking out. But I'm just saying, so, he, so we as a nation may not really fully be there, but that's something to reach for. Mm. That's something to strive for. That's, that, that statement will hopefully will be over that door and will be how we operate here. But let me tell you this, I teach that to our students. I unpack that statement because anybody can, when I first asked, when I first put it up, I said, come over here, somebody from the office and tell me what that says to you. I don't even understand that. You know, so, you know, so what are people going to say when they read that? Are they going to say, hmm, what's that? You know, and, and for some, it will be that. So I made it my business to teach our children, the ones who are students here, unpack it and let's understand it. I mean, from first graders, I don't really do well with kindergartners because they talk a different language than I do. If I ask them about A, they'll tell me about mama and daddy and B, so I can't track them, you know what I'm saying? So from first grade all the way to eighth grade, we have something called character education class that I teach once a month. And I make sure in my, in my agenda, I'm going to have a lesson on what does that mean? How should we treat others? And they'll say, oh, treat others the way you want to be treated. Okay, good. What does it mean that, uh, what does it mean that there are no others? How could that be that there are no others? Think about it. So let's do this. I'm going to introduce myself to you as, hi, I'm Dr. Woodard. Hi, Dr. Woodard, to you. I do these little tricky things, you know, to get them to think. Well, that, that doesn't, you know. And then we go on to the second part. So I unpack it every year. Not just one time, but every year we're going to go over that because they need to understand or have some begin to have an understanding of how, how we are here to... What does awaken mean? Oh, it means to wake up. What's an illusion? Something that's fake, something that's not real. And what, do, you know, from our separateness, what does separateness mean? And I bring them up and we start saying, you know, here's a Hispanic, here's a black, here's a female, here's a white, you know. Are, are we the same? How could all of these differentiations here be the same? How could we be, you know? So I love that statement and it is where we're striving and it will be generations and generations. But I believe the day is coming when that will be the truth of the, of the, of the world, the truth of our society, the truth of the world, that we will move from 
this, we will awaken. I think we're doing it. Mm-hmm. When I see these, uh, when I see the students in Parkland, Florida, when I see, and I was part of the uh, women's uh, uh, march uh, the day after Trump was uh, elected, uh, and it's worldwide, there's a solidarity. There's a coming, to, there's a coming of age here mm-hmm. happening, not just here, but in the world uh, that I fully believe it, I may even live to, to, to actually see the fruits of that. But maybe not. But I'll see it in another way. So that is a very, very important statement. And I'll tell you the truth of the matter. The board thought that I should write something. You know, so because you, Joanne, you're the school is named after Sally B. You're the, 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 the you're, you know, you're the engine behind every day and every year's work that we do. So uh, why don't you put something up there? Mm-mm. I don't. I can't. No. This is what we're after. We're after right. this. So. I um, thank you for bringing that up because that's an important statement. I'd I'd like the community to know about this school. It's bigger than Dr. Woodard. It's bigger than Sally B. Howard. It's bigger than anybody. And even collectively, it's bigger than all of us put together. And it's exciting. It's fulfilling. It is my joy. Uh, It is why I wake up every day. I, I had a little sickness the other day, like a big, big, big headache from a sinus congestion or something. I went to the doctor. I just broke down crying. She said, what's the matter? I said, I don't want to be here. I need to be at school. It matters if I'm there. I have meetings. We've got to get things done. And she said, oh, my God. I just broke down. You know, sometimes you just break down. I don't do that often. And in front of the doctor? Oh, are you kidding me? So uh, I just couldn't help it. I was just overwhelmed. I was miserable. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been there. I needed to give me a shot so I could go back to work. And uh, I, I, it was just too much for me. I was getting phone calls. I was trying to do, all, oh, Lord Jesus, I don't want to be here. So <laughs> well, that's as, my life. As educators, I think that's what we all do this for, is to hope that the next generation can, can do what we see in our minds as possible. And my last question for you is, is this, because I don't know, is, is Miss Sally B. Howard still a part of the school community? I don't know where you're getting your questions from, but this is exactly what I want you to ask me. I didn't even know it until I heard it. Miss Howard, on next Friday, the 23rd, will be 102 years old. Get out we of here. are having an amazing 20th celebration. I want you to go to Sally B. Howard's Facebook page and see the commercial we have on that. We're going to have Reverend William Barber, Moral Monday organizer, as our keynote speaker next Friday at 6 p.m. We're having a reception from 5 to 6, but he'll be... Congressman G.K. Butterfield is going to be here to introduce him. That's the evening program. And uh, she will be here. Oh, she's here on all of our programs. We have a concert next Thursday night and next Friday morning, the same day of the anniversary. She'll be here and take the mic and just acknowledge the children and thank the people. 102. She has takes less medicine than I do. I have take two uh, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes. I take more medicine than she does. She has nothing. Okay, and uh, so yeah. Well, listen, I, I really appreciate you sharing, sharing the story with us, and I can only imagine how, 
how proud Sally B. Howard must be of the world here that you have helped create that is behind her namesake. You're right. I have to take the mic. I said, Miss Howard, people you hear people hear that all the time. Can you just, you know, give it a rest? Well, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Because she cannot stop thanking me and God mm. for for him bringing me to her because she had nobody to turn her her passion and her knowledge and not just her knowledge but her work over to. Mm-hmm. And 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 I I embraced it and made it my own. And she just, you know, she's so grateful to God for that. And she's, every public appearance, she's going to tell the world that too. But, you know, I get embarrassed after a while sure. that you keep saying that, you know. <laughs> I'm doing the work that I want to do and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to appreciate you, Jeff, for, for even cho- choosing me as a principal. I know I'm not the conventional. You're a very poised guy. You know, I'm looking at you over there. And look at me. You know, I'm just wild and crazy. It seems like, but it's not. It's just the ex- excitement and the passion and the love and the joy that I have for what I do, for what we do here. And I just can't help being who I am. I'm just so sorry. I, I apologize to anybody that's offended by the, by the way I characterize myself and speak, but I just can't be anything other than that. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. I appreciate you being real. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is Miss Joanne Woodard of Sally B. Howard School in Wilson, North Carolina. I can't tell you how grateful I am for the time that she spent with me, teaching me about about what it means to her to lead and the the story of their school. I just wanted to add to the story um, from where she left it off that... uh, that I was able to attend the Sally B. Howard 102nd <laughs> birthday party, as well as the uh, as well as the 20th anniversary of the school. And when I did, uh, Dr. Woodard brought me out into the hallway where there was a, a poem that was written by Miss Sally B. Howard, and I, I want to share it with you. Uh, this was written by Sally B. Howard in the year 1948. It's called "When I Lay Me Down to Die." It goes like this. When I lay me down to die, have bade farewell this beauteous world, of valleys green and oceans swirl, of fragrant blossoms and birds that sing, of happy voices with childlike ring, of ecstasy from lover's kiss. Though evermore I'm done with this, and my journey through eternity to the dawn of nothing be, I shall begin it cheerfully, if little children let fall a tear to express the love they bear, and weep my passing from this earth, because till death... Yea, from birth, for truth and goodness I have striven, because of kindness I have given. If they should weep to have me stay, because I've lighted up their way, then happy upon my couch I'll lie when I lay me down to die. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of the Principal's Office podcast. This is Jeff Gorski from Leaders Building Leaders. Have a great day.